Thanks for joining the True West Podcast with David Fischette, where David sits down with business leaders, artists, creatives, and champions of humanity to discuss their explorer's spirit. If your true north is your sense of purpose that drives you each day and that thing you'll be remembered for long after you're gone, we believe that your true west is your sense of adventure, your curiosity, and the thing that makes you turn your back to the sunrise and head into uncharted territories. You'll hear stories of tenacity and courage that live inside each of us to follow our own path into the future we desire. We hope that you will be inspired to follow your true west today. Welcome back to another episode of the True West Podcast, brought to you by the good folks at Go West Creative, coming to you live in Nashville, Tennessee, from the studio collection at Go West. In studio with me today is actor, writer, director, producer, and I shall not say the voice of Donkey Kong, Richard Yearwood. Richard. How you doing, David? What's up, brother? Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Oh, my goodness. Now, when you talk about a True West journey, you truly have a True West journey, right? Because you were actually born in England. I was. So, yeah, had to go west. So, tell us a little bit about your journey. We're going to talk about your career in a second, but talk about your journey, because you are the only person that I know that holds passports for three different countries. Now, I don't really hold passports for three different countries. I was born in England. Yes. So, I can't get rid of that, or Supreme will get me. So, on my birth certificate... She's dead. I know. Too soon? Yeah, mm, kind of. Sorry. It's all right. So on the passport, it says England. Right. And then I moved to Canada, and I got my citizenship. So it says England and Canada. Right. And then I moved to the States. I got my citizenship, so it says English and Canada, but I was born in England. Right. England, Canada, and the States. So, so how many passports is that? That sounds like three passports to me. But... But I can only hold two. Okay, so which one do you have? It's like a U.S. Canadian pa- and the U.S. passport. Got it. Canadian is kind of like English light. Yeah, it's English light. Kind of. Most definitely. <laughs> it's a province, right? What do they call it? A, Provinces, yeah. A prov- but no, but what do they call it? its relationship to Great Britain? I don't know. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Thank you. Thank you, Canadians. <laughs> you got all the information you need here at the True West Podcast. So tell us exactly how old you were when you moved from the UK over to Canada. I was five and a half years old. And at what point did you start performing? Ten. But my parents said I was performing right from the get-go. Because I was, uh, I'll never forget this. My dad was uh, having fun with me. And there was this guy that was fixing my dad's car. And I went underneath the car. I said, do you know what you're doing? But I did it in a British accent. Do you know what you're doing? And it was so funny. And I kept ribbing the guy, ribbing the guy. And I was like, six. Nice. And my dad was like, wow. You're a pest. Yes. Yes. It was, it was fun. When did you lose the British accent? When did it like fade away? Well, I got hit by a fist. And I said, I got to get rid of this British accent. So the Canadian kids yep. were picking on you for having a British accent. 100%. And I exactly wasn't that tall. I'm not tall right now. No. But uh, you, you certainly are not. I'm not. No one has ever accused you of being tall. But they should. <laughs> but yeah, I got uh, beaten up when I was a kid. And I said, and the kids were making fun of my accent. I said, okay, I'm going to lose that accent. So I totally went American in Canada. Right. And that totally flipped the course. Got it, because you're cool because you're American. Exactly. Because all Americans are cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> so talk to me about, you've had this incredible career as a director and a producer. We're going to get to Love It or List It. You produced and directed Love It or List It for, what, I think seven seasons? Yes. But you started off as a child actor, and you actually had quite a bit of success. Tell me a little bit about your journey with that. Well, I will tell you this. I auditioned for this play, The Linus Christmas Special. I got it. Who did I play? Some guy. I can't remember who I played. But I played this guy, and this guy is in the audience and said, hey, do you want to do this for a living? I said, yeah, I would love to do this for a living. Where's your parents? They're right over there. So walking over, I have a theater group that I want your kid to be a part of. He was a scammer. And he scammed us for two years, then finally said, listen, I'm scamming you, kid, but here's an agency. I feel really bad. And so he gave me a proper agency. And from then on, I just killed it. So the the good scammer. He was a good scammer. Scammer with a a golden heart. Yeah, because he felt so bad that he was hurting us. All right. So here's the deal. We are uh, only five minutes into this podcast, and you did a Charlie Brown play. Yes. Right. Something about Linus. Yes. And you can't remember the character you played. No, I can't Was it Snoopy? No. Was it Schroeder? No. Was it Charlie Brown? No, it was Charlie Brown's. He played the piano. That's Schroeder. No, it's not not Schroeder. It was Schroeder. Stop banging the table. No, it's not Schroeder. Didn't Schroeder play the piano? Wasn't that? Yeah. So it's not Schroeder. It's Linus. You had the lead. Linus was Lucy's brother that always had the blanket. I was Linus. He was Linus. You couldn't remember you had the the title role. That's why I wanted to spend some time here, people. (laughs) I just want to talk about uh, short-term memory loss, long-term memory loss. Anyway, so... I was probably, what, eight? Okay, so talk to me about that. So when you got your first real agent and you started yeah. doing you said you killed it. What does killed it mean? Are you doing television shows? Are you doing commercials? Are you doing movies? What, what are you doing at that point? Every single thing that I auditioned for, I basically got. Because there was not a lot of black kids that actually wanted to be on camera. And there's not a lot of black parts. So I basically got all the black parts. Because when you were a kid, mm-hmm. if you were excited and really crazy, which I was, right. then you're going to get the part. And I wasn't ugly. So I that got happened the part. later? It happened later. Yeah, I know. It's okay. Sorry. It's okay. You're a beautiful man. So then the transition, when you become an adult, are you still an actor? Or at this point, you're starting to get interested in writing or directing or producing at that point? Well, there's a director who I auditioned for, and he gave me the lead role in his movie. And he said, you're going to get bored. So I said, bored? I'm not going to get bored acting. No one gets bored acting. Boy, was I wrong. But anyways, he said that I'll give you the part as long as you direct it with me. And so every day I directed it. I fell in love with directing. Mm. It's really cool. And then I didn't do anything with the directing. I kept on acting. And then one day I went, you know what? I'm going to do some directing. And so I directed for this company called Tricon Film and Television. And it was really, really cool. It was reality television. And it wasn't nasty reality television. It was real reality television. What type of shows were you doing? Food shows or build shows? Food show, build shows, experiential shows, things that actually made a difference. Got it. So I love that. So more a lighthearted situation, not something where you're you're pitting people against each other. 100%. Voting them off the island. And that's exactly what I've done for my career is done those kind of shows. So you're so good with people, right? Uh, the work that we have done together is multifaceted. We've done live event work together. You're an incredible stage manager. And for somebody with your pedigree, your experience, you might think a role of stage manager might be beneath you, somebody that's a producer and a, and a director. But what I love about you as a stage manager is that it's such a key pivotal role in the live event space that person that is at the stage with the executives before they 
walk out on stage. You make them feel comfortable. You make them feel warm. You, you help calm their nerves. And so that's such an incredible role. So what is it about your experience growing up that made you realize that was the way to be successful? Not being overly powerful, not domineering, but just to kind of be there as a support role and that actually makes you more successful. How did that philosophy come about for you? My parents, they told me that I'm nothing. And I'm, what I mean by that, they made it clear to me that I am literally doing nothing but acting. Anybody can be an actor, they would say. So you can't take that thing special. I would get picked up by the car and they would drive me to set. Then somebody would be waiting for me to come out of the car. Literally mm -hmm. waiting for a kid to come out of the car. Then they would walk me to the Winnebago. Then I would get my clothes and they would ask me, do you want anything to eat? And all this stuff that they would do for me to make me think that I'm special. And I wouldn't take it because my parents would kept telling me, you're nothing. So I took that and I took that into stage managing saying, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to these people to make them feel warm, make them feel excited, make them feel like they're special because it's nothing. Everything that I've done is nothing. Okay, so you say that, and I've heard you say that before, and I, I want to dig into that. Okay. Because you're not nothing, no. and, and what you do is not nothing, and I don't think your parents' intent, because people listening to this podcast will go, wait, his, his parents told him he was nothing? Dive a little bit deeper into that. Did you take that as in it was a, a cut down from your parents, or it was them trying to ground me you? Up. Ground okay. me. They, they tried to ground me. Right. They totally wanted me to be grounded and not take anything for granted because my parents were fantastic people and they just wanted me to be fantastic to everyone mm -hmm. and if I didn't get big-headed if I kept level-headed that they knew that I would be a different person mm -hmm. and that's what they wanted for me they wanted me to be different they wanted me to make everybody feel special so if I was a stage manager then I'm going to be the best stage manager imaginable mm -hmm. because I'm going to make that person feel like they are it and when they go on that stage, they're great. Right. They're great. And they come off this, Richard, I did great. I did great. I told you would do great. Doesn't matter what I do, I'm level headed. I don't take anything for granted. That's how my parents were. And we've seen this, you know, time and time again with executives of Fortune Four companies mm -hmm. saying, Let's bring Richard out here, right? Calling you out on the stage and acknowledging you for how great you are in the middle of their conference. You've been incredible about that. And talk to me a little bit about your parents. We've been friends for, for many, many years. I've never met your parents, but we've had a lot of interaction around mm. your parents, right? Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about your dad and who he was and that, that influence on your life. Well, my dad was, he was a great guy. He was just, I'll tell you this. My dad was amazing. At his funeral, I didn't have a place to sit. Like it was full mm -hmm. and I stood at the back and I went to sit at the front and the police chief said, go somewhere else. I said, okay. And Did the police chief know that you're his son? No. Okay. Here's, got it. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> So, okay. And so I went and looked for a seat and there was no seat. And this was a massive church. Mm. And I sat at the back. And then all these people were getting up and saying how my dad had healed them in a way or had taught to them in a certain way. It was, it was really wild seeing that my dad was, was heralded, but you wouldn't know that he was doing these things. Mm -hmm. He did these things in private, mm. in a private way, which made me say, I got you, dad. I had to wait until you die for me to see your worth. So I'm going to do things in private just how you did it. That's awesome. So, that's awesome. Yeah. That's why I'm good with people. Right. I'm good with people because I get down to their level. Everybody wants to be a kid. Right. 
Everybody wants to be a kid. Everybody. That is my gift. I'm going to be a kid to you and you're going to have fun in the play box. Yeah. So you're so good at it. Yes. You lost your dad back in 2009 Mm -hmm. while we were uh, in the middle of shooting a film up in Canada. And then you lost your mom in the middle of COVID as well. Exactly. Just, Just before. Just before COVID. Got it. So what is that like now? So you and I are similar in that way. Both of our parents are gone. And you've got this beautiful relationship with your two kids. How do you instill who your parents were into your kids? Forgive me, I have a two-year-old, so I've been watching Lion King a lot. (laughs) So thinking about Mufasa right now. But how do they live on through you? And how does that manifest itself with your children? Many, many years ago, when my kids were like maybe 10 and 9, I took three years off just to be with them. And that was a tough financial years. Right. Financial years, it was terrible. But I remember my mom and dad, they never missed anything. Hmm. They never missed a soccer game, never missed me going for an audition. They never missed any of those things. And my parents were always there. And so I think those three years I took off from work, didn't work at all, and just was with them. That was the key for me in my relationship because they know I'm there. They know I have to work to make money, mm-hmm. but they know I'm there. Right. And, and my parents, it is definitely in them that work hard and treat everybody right. And my son, he did something which was crazy. I lived in Calabasas. and California. Calabasas, California. And in my backyard is where the Kardashians would ride their horses. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say that someone from their family hurt themselves, and my son jumped the fence to take care of them. And, and the one thing they said, what do you want me to do? And they didn't say, you don't do anything. Just stay here with me and call the ambulance. And my son said, okay, but I will do something. I'm going to pray over you. Mm-hmm. And that is all I wanted. That is exactly right. what my parents would want. Just that prayer over someone that is, that takes them outside of themselves. Right. Gives them peace in the moment. Peace in the moment. Right. It's crazy. Let me um, switch topics for a second. Born in England, raised in Canada, come live in the U.S. in Los Angeles area for a long time, and then you head off to South Carolina and you, you North Carolina, North Carolina, one of the Carolines. Yeah. The Carolines. <laughs> they, they run, run, run together to direct and produce Love It or List, a very successful show. And then you moved here to Nashville. So I'm going to ask you a hard question, right? So being a black man, moving from Canada, then to Los Angeles, melting pot, and then to a couple of southern states, how has that transition been for you? And how have you had to use your creativity, your curiosity, your sense of adventure to kind of make a way for yourself? Well, it's been great. It's been absolutely fantastic. <laughs> it has been uh, a really tough time, mm. a really tough time of trying to first negotiate how I can be in North Carolina and not say, hey, I'm the boss here. You have to listen to me having to get rid of that. Because of the color of your skin. Because of the color of my skin. Because your crew maybe is uh, all white. All or, white. Yeah, white. All of. white. And so did, did you feel that? Did anybody say anything to you? Or oh. was it just, just kind of assumed that that was going to be a challenge there? Jeff, the sound man, made it very clear. You're going to have to change your ways. He made it very clear. I said, oh, okay. And he, he's a good friend with me right now. But he was telling me, you won't last here. You're going to have to try a different way to, for people to love you. 
And so I found a different way. I found a different way. Adapt. I did adapt. I did adapt. And then what about moving here to to Nashville? How's that been for you? It's been very tough. Hmm. It's been tough. Why is that? Tell me a little bit about it. Well, it's... um, so why would Nashville be tough? Because you came to Nashville, you came to work for a company that you've been working for forever. For years. Yeah, you have a lot of friends here. So yeah. is it the city itself, has it been acclimating to this city? It 100% has been the city itself. It's not about the people. When mm. I'm in, inside Go West, I feel warm, I feel safe, I feel everything. When I leave Go West mm-hmm. on a daily basis, mm-hmm. I literally have to think about the police. I have to think about People who, who look like me, who aren't like me. I have to think about when I go into my building that I know the person, the new person there is going to say, can I help you? And I, as, if, as if you don't live there, as, if, a, as yes. if you're somebody trying to gain access to the building that you actually live in. Exactly. And that happens a lot because the turnover is so, so often that I go, oh, new person. I said, hi, how are you doing? So in your experience, if somebody had different color skin in that building and just it would just walk right by? <laughs> Put it this way, David, you came into my building mm. and you got upstairs to my floor, which is unheard of because my building is so safe that you can't press the button to get it up to my floor. Right. You have to be let in. And the only way to be let in is if they call me to say that you're coming to my building. Right. I didn't even get a call. Right. You got let in. Got it. Obviously, that is something I wanted to bring up. It's something I have experienced the other side of it. Right. Moving to Nashville, uh, I was 50 years old when I moved here, and I was a middle-aged white guy. And it was my first time realizing and seeing what racism, segregation, and it's not everywhere, but but it's not. It is far more common and and it's a lot more in your face when you look at this building and it's got 500 units in it and there's two black families yeah but then you go you know half a mile down the street and it's all section eight housing and you know and you work go to this restaurant and it's all black employees and you go to this restaurant right next door and it's all white employees and it's like what is that 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 residue that still exists and lives in this city I don't know what it is. Right. I, I really don't. And I didn't find this in North Carolina, but I found it very hard in Tennessee. I have no idea what it is. I'm doing a very good job of adapting mm-hmm. and being okay with someone not liking me in a certain area. I'm not leaving. Mm-hmm. So I know that in 10 years that my efforts of not leaving is going to be fruitful. Yeah. And that's why we work with organizations like Nashville Peacemakers, because yep. we, we want to make a change. And, you know, again, as a middle-aged white guy, I'm like, ah, I don't know how to help, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, people like me come in here and go, you, you know what you need me to do to fix this? Let me mm. fix this. And it's like, it's not about fixing. It's just about listening. So, all right. So we're all over the place. I just want to come back and just say, you've been such a tremendous light to so many people for so many years. And you care so deeply about so many people. So people that are out there listening that want a career in film or television or production, what would be your advice especially those that find themselves facing adversity as they go after their quest? My advice is just do it. Don't listen to anybody, whether it's your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your your pastor, whatever it is. Don't listen to The only person you have to listen to is yourself. And if you are the best at what you are doing, you will succeed. If you are the best at it, you will succeed. If you have the best attitude too, right? Best attitude for sure. Yeah. yeah. 
Richard Yearwood, I appreciate you so much, pal. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, David. Yeah. And uh, thank you all for joining us for another episode of the True West Podcast, coming to you live from Nashville, Tennessee, here at the Studio Collection to Go West. Stay curious, friends. Thanks for joining the True West Podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guest, please check below or see the episode notes. Until then, stay curious.